1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 262 of the Pack-A-Day podcast. My name is Andy Herman. I am a writer for Cheesehead TV. Of course, you can always follow me on Twitter, at Skani Sports. We are deep in the heart of NFL draft season, and would absolutely be criminal if I didn't bring in Ben Fennel to discuss some of the top prospects in the NFL draft. He has been absolutely grinding away at some of the best prospects in this draft, some of the sleepers, some of the guys he's maybe not so high on. So I'm very excited to get to discuss those prospects with him today. Ben, of course, is a contributor for The Athletic Wisconsin. He works for the NFL Network and is very involved in their NFL draft coverage. Uh, He's worked for the Philadelphia Eagles. He's done game work for ESPN College Football. He is a huge Packers fan and one of the best analysts in the business. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. I am incredibly excited to talk draft with you.
3: Yeah, it's always a pleasure to hop on, talk some Packers. And this really is my favorite time of the year, This kind of lead up into the draft and we're just solidifying all our grades and all our perspectives on these players and trying to project where they're going to fit into the NFL. It's just a really exciting time for conversation.
1: Yeah, these this next month-ish, the, the two weeks, three weeks prior to the draft and then the week after when you kind of get to unwrap the presents and dig in even further to some of the prospects that, you know, everyone's favorite team drafts, I think that's just – uh, a really fun time, and then you get, of course, another twenty to twenty-five undrafted guys. You know, most you've probably seen a good portion of them. I know a lot of, of a a lot of us probably won't have even known a lot of their names at that point. But that's one of my favorite aspects of it too. the whole The whole time frame is just like Christmas.
3: Oh, every year those undrafted lists come out, and I'm just blown away with how much football is played in this country. Because there's always names that it's not like, oh, I didn't watch this guy. There's guys who I haven't even heard of these players. No matter where you are, whether you're in Canada, D3, NAIA, play your game. The NFL will find you. And I'm impressed every year at the list of these undrafted free agents and where they come from.
1: Absolutely. It's a ton of fun. I mean, look at what Luis Perez, who was a bowler, you know, a couple of years, uh, not too long before he uh, ended up as an undrafted free agent. And then, of course, playing with the AAF and now with the Eagles, correct?
3: Exactly. He didn't play a lick of varsity high school football, ends up going D2, went to Harlan Hill. D two national championship, really intriguing story at Texas A and M Commerce. There's just tons of stories like that all over the country.
1: Yeah, and it's really fun too. You know, as I'm going through some of these undrafted guys, I'm going to butcher his name, but I think it was Filippo Macufasi. I want to say it was. He was a defensive tackle for I want to say it was Utah. And uh, he was an undrafted free agent for the Packers who like retired like two weeks after they signed him. Um, but I'm watching him and this player flashes on tape multiple times and I'm looking up who it is and it's Nikhil Harry. And, uh, you know, you start seeing players like that when you're drafting or when you're reviewing some of these undrafted guys as well. So uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving for sure.
3: No question. I always have a list next to my desk called who is that guy? And it's I just keep of players that stand out when I'm watching other players and it happens all the time. And before you know it, a year or two down the road, you're studying that player full on. And uh, it's just kind of a fun process how that all evolves.
1: Yeah, I keep like a thousand lists and then I lose all of those lists and I have to go back and try to find them. So I got to do a better job of that. My, my organizational skills are not the strong point of my draft process. I will say that for sure. But I want to get started. I want to jump in right away to some of these uh, players who could be in play at pick 12. I know there's a lot of potential names that are out there. Uh, Ben, what I kind of want to do is go lightning round through some of these top prospects. And I want you to kind of give an elevator statement of uh, what they would be for the Packers if you think they're in play at 12 and maybe some of their strengths and weaknesses. You up for that? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's start with Brian Burns, uh, edge rusher for Florida State.
3: So Brian Burns is one of the more productive edge rushers. Played around 225 at Florida State and then bulked up to 249 at the Combine. So he addressed the weight concerns, and he looked really well moving around Combine at the drills. He's a player with flexibility and explosive first step, but someone that also uses his hands in his pass rush and has a great pass rush plan. And he's not someone that's just looking to run around tackles. Those players that just look to run around tackles typically get punched in the side of the head in the NFL. You have to use your hands. You have to win with your hands in the NFL. And that's what Brian Burns does a really good job with. Plays in space very well on the perimeter. He could QB spy for you on some third downs. He's a player that just brings a lot of intriguing athleticism to the edge.
1: He really really does and I agree with you. He's he's a quarterback hunter. He's he's going to bend and explode to the quarterback. I also would say that he is somebody that the Packers don't currently really have on their roster. He's a weapon that they don't really have. Would you agree with that or Absolutely. I
3: think he'd be a great complementary piece to some of these heavier edges, you know, in the Preston Smith, who really isn't an edge bender or as a Darius Smith who they want to kick inside in some sub packages. They could really use that edge rusher that has that explosive first step to maybe chase the quarterback out of the pocket, into the teeth of some of those heavier players up front.
1: Absolutely. And as a, as a coordinator, I would love having different weapons, whether it be on offense with different styles of wide receiver. Same thing at running back. Corner, of course, you've got your big guy in Kevin King. you got your small guy in Jair Alexander. You've got your medium-sized guy in Josh Jackson. You kind of want those different flavors to be able to match up with different type of uh, different type of players. And it's kind of the same at Edge Rusher. They've got a few different flavors already in Fackerel and Preston and Zadarius, but nothing quite like Brian Burns, which is why I would be so intrigued if he would be the guy for for a patent to use in that defense
3: yeah i also love following the process of these guys brian burns showed up at florida state at 205 pounds it's a lot like d4 showed up to auburn at 190 pounds so these guys are much different players now than when they walked onto campus and their play weight versus their athleticism their stiffness their play strength their flexibility all has to kind of get weighed into the same equation so it's really fun to watch kind of how they showed up on campus and what they're turning into now
1: you love to see continuous growth throughout the process, and certainly Brian Burns has that. All right, next guy on the list, TJ Hawkinson.
3: So TJ Hawkinson, obviously tight end one in this draft, a guy that can hang in line as a blocking tight end. You could put him face-to-face against defensive ends and cut the backside of run plays. He's a very tenacious blocker, runs his feet really well, has good play strength, but he's also pretty savvy pass catcher. He knows how to separate. He's good in the red zone. This is a guy that makes offenses tick. It's not the athletic, sexy pass catchers, the Tyler Eiferts, the Jimmy Grahams, the Zach Ertz's that make offenses tick. No, it's the Rob Grimkowskis. It's the George Kittles. It's the guys that you can disguise your intent and what you're trying to do. You can hang them on the field on every down, whether it's a run play or a pass play. And that's what every team in the NFL is coveting right now, that T.J. Hopkinson player that you can survive in the run game and he can provide an upside in the pass game. Everybody wants a Hawkinson on their team.
1: So, a couple quick follow up questions on Hawkinson. So, I thought you had a really interesting tweet today on how Matt LaFleur really uses his tight ends and what type of tight end would fit best in that system. Does TJ Hawkinson fit that mold and kind of just break down that a little bit? And then, two, would TJ Hawkinson be too rich at 12 for you?
3: Yeah, so I went and watched a lot of the explosive plays from the Tennessee Titans tight ends in 2018. And I noticed watching all their tight, uh, excuse me, their touchdowns and 10 yard receptions from Luke Stocker and John O. Smith. They were all schemed open. They were almost all off of play action, some leak outs underneath the formation, some over routes off play action, outside zone stretch, and they kind of sneak in behind the linebackers. That's called scheming open tight ends. I don't need a dynamic athletic tight end to get open on those plays. We're going to get you open. So we don't really require our tight ends to survive on their own. We don't set up isolation routes and ask you to win in the route one-on-one we're going to scheme you open so in order to scheme you open we have to be able to disguise you you have to be able to survive in the run game first and foremost sell the run and then you can work in all the wrinkles off of that and that's what sean mcveigh preaches that's what kyle shanahan preaches and that's the same tree that matt Lafleur comes from he's going to build a foundation offense and it's all going to be worked through the outside zone running game and then working all the wrinkles and the play action off of that But the tight end that's going to stay on the field is the one that can disguise his intent and that can survive as a blocker. And then we can scheme him open in the pass game and he can get out into the open field like TJ Hawkinson can do. I think if you have a complete player like a TJ Hawkinson, I think the 12th pick in the NFL draft in the first round would be an ideal landing spot for a player of that caliber
1: perfect love it and he's a player for me that just uh, just screams off the tape he's so fundamentally sound at just about everything it's so rare that you see tight ends blocking guys 15 20 yards downfield and he certainly does that on a you know probably not a consistent basis but it shows up quite a bit on tape and uh you just love the effort you love the backside blocks you did a great film review on that just just a really really nice player that would come in and fit in the offense and i, I put it this way I think he makes your best players on offense better, including Aaron Jones. He's going to hit all those backside blocks. He's going to be an aggressive blocker. He's going to make Rodgers better because he's going to be that big target over the middle. Like you said, he can be effective in the red zone. And then I think he's really going to kind of open things up a little bit for Devontae Adams too. Uh, safeties are going to have to peek his way as, a little bit as well. So he makes some of the best players on offense for Green Bay better.
3: That's really well said. I just think he's a very complimentative player, and that's a great point about the outside zone run game and the cutback lanes for Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams. That's something they're very good at and feeling that vision, but you got to have a tight end that understands his responsibility and can seal that backside and cut it off and create that cutback lane.
1: Perfect. So the next one on my list is one I'm really interested to hear your take on, and that is Rashawn Gary, defensive lineman for Michigan.
3: So he's one of the more polarizing prospects in this draft. He's all over the place on different big boards and mock drafts, anywhere from being a top 15 pick to maybe sliding into deep day two. People feel he kind of underachieved at Michigan and really didn't develop after being that number one recruit out of high school. And a lot of times when you get that top prospect, you're so excited of where can we implement him into our defense, you're not so focused on developing him and really refining his traits because he was such an explosive, freaky athlete coming from high school. So he has the play speed, the explosive gear, but we need to figure out where we're playing him positionally. Is he a 4-3 end? Is he a 3-tech? You know, Can he play out in space? So there's a bit of questions on where you're going to play him. I think he's going to be kind of a heavy edge for you that can set some physical edges in the run game. will collapse the pocket with power. And when he plays with good effort and intensity, he can make those plays outside of the tackle box and chase ball carriers out to the numbers and to the sideline that you just didn't see that consistently. You'd see flashes of it, and that's kind of the issue with a player like that when he shows you flashes, but he's not doing it on a consistent basis. So what are you getting with a player like that? Sometimes there's a buyer beware where they can turn into a a pro bowler in year one, and sometimes they turn into a bust in year one. Those players are really boom or bust, and uh, I'm just seeing a lot of different opinions on them at this point in the process.
1: Yeah, I agree on that boomer bust take, and that's what worries me so much is when you're picking that pick 12, you want a little bit more of a sense of exactly what you're getting. Uh, A boomer bust guy towards the end of round one, if you're a team that's maybe a player away, I get that type of gamble. But we talked about flavors with Brian Burns and having kind of those different type of weapons. To me, Green Bay has some players like Rashawn Gary on the roster already. So this is kind of the one guy that I have trouble getting behind with pick 12, Anything besides quarterback, running back, or Rashawn Gary, I feel like I could talk myself into. Gary would take a little bit of extra sugar to help me swallow it and get it down.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like he does kind of fit that mold of a Darius Smith and that heavier kind of edge setter that you can maybe kick into three tech. And they could really use more of that guy to sniff out the quarterback with speed and chase someone with the high rush into some of those guys on the interior D line. So complimenting your edge rushers is very important as well.
1: Perfect. Let's move on to his teammates, Devin Bush.
3: Devin Bush, one of my favorite linebackers. I've been watching a lot of linebackers lately, and some of these guys haven't been testing well, but they play much faster. So I've been really paying attention to angles and pursuit path. But when you have a guy that takes the proper angles and runs 4-4, now you're cooking with gas. He's my linebacker one above Devin White from LSU. I just think he's much more under control. He makes a lot more plays than Devin White. Devin White has the splash plays, the highlight plays, but he's a reckless player as well. I just think Devin Bush is a much more sound, controlled player. He's a phone booth hitter. He can knock you off your feet face-to-face, which I absolutely love. The only concern with him is what do you do with him on third down? And you really have to look at how colleges use these players on third down because they'll tell you a little bit about their skill set. You know, when – Uh, Nick Saban puts Reuben Foster, linebacker, as an edge rusher on third down. What does that tell you about his ability to cover? Probably not that great. And that's another thing with Devin Bush. He rushed the passer quite a bit on third down. He would spy the quarterback. He would blitz, which he was very good at. But he's going to be a coverage liability against backs and tight ends? Can he turn and run down the field? Does he have the savviness to find the ball in coverage opposed to zone drops and turning in man-to-man coverage? He's good at zone drops. He could get to his landmark and read the quarterback. But that third down uh, kind of usage is a bit of a question mark. But right now, the Packers could use that explosive playmaker on the second level of the defense. We have the tackling machines. Now we need the big plays coming after it.
1: So one question that I had, and I'm hoping maybe you can answer this for me. I've I've watched a decent amount of tape on Devin Bush, but I kind of have him on my uh, go-back-and-rewatch list at some point. One of the things that I questioned was his ability to get off of blocks at his size. Did you have concerns over that, or did you see enough in his tape that you felt he could get off of blocks well enough?
3: Absolutely. And, you know, being 5'11 and not having, you know, super long arms, you're going to get swallowed up by big offensive linemen. And there's some big, imposing players in the Big Ten at Ohio State, Penn State, Wisconsin that sometimes engulfed him. But he had very good foot speed. He has good lateral movement. And he played with really good instincts that he could get himself. A half step ahead and beat blocks either over the top or swooping underneath. So he reminds me a lot of a Jonathan Vilma style player who is mm-hmm. six foot two thirty. Devin Bush is five eleven two thirty four, and he just has that explosive gear to kind of beat tackles uh, with his foot speed. But Devin Bush is a player that isn't afraid to get punched in the face. He can handle some physicality. He'll fight his way out of phone boots with some offensive linemen. I just love a guy that will scrap and claw with those guys, and you know, kind of not go down uh, without a fight.
1: Yeah, and I think you bring up a great point with instincts, too, in really separating Burns from White. That was one of the tough lessons that I learned through the draft process is taking inside linebackers that don't have great instincts usually doesn't work out very well. Uh, example is Stefan Anthony for me. I had him very ra- highly rated on my board. He hit all the athletic thresholds. I really liked what he did in his last season at Clemson, but he just ultimately didn't have... Great instincts for playing inside linebacker. They tried him at strong side, they tried him at weak side. Nothing really fit. He's still in the league, but certainly never lived up to that first round moniker. And I think that's really a huge reason why.
3: You know, Stefan Anthony was a very interesting player because I went back and watched his tape after he got drafted by the Saints. And you realize how many free access to ball carriers he had. And you realize he just had all these free alleys to go make plays and suddenly pay attention to these big guys in front. And it's like, oh. That's Grady Jarrett eating two blockers, keeping that linebacker free. And, you know, maybe that's why a Grady Jarrett wasn't as coveted in the draft and a Stefan Anthony was. So the scheme fit and how they're used as well in college is a big part of their projection. If they're a stacked linebacker and not having to fight off a lot of blocks, they're going to look pretty good on tape. But that's not always the scheme you're going to get put into the NFL.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is a perfect segue. We're talking Grady Jarrett, a, a Clemson defensive tackle. Let's talk another one. Let's talk about Christian Wilkins.
3: Yeah, so Christian Wilkins, man, this guy is just an All-American uh, style of player. I mean, four-time conference winner, two-time national champion, three-time all-conference, three-time all-conference academic. I don't think he's missed a game. Very positioned, versatile. He can play up and down the defensive line. He's even played some nose shade and some sub packages. So he's a very intriguing player for his positional versatility. Uh, I'm not really sure where I want to play him. I think he's going to be a three-tech in the NFL uh, as an interior defensive lineman. That can maybe kick out and play some uh, some edge and some different sub-packages and different pressure packages. But he's just a really solid player. But with these players and Clemson and being such a dominant defense with Dexter Lawrence and all those other really intriguing players, you don't always know who's helping who out there. Was he a product of a very dominant unit and a very dominant recruiting class coming in as a freshman with all these other players that stayed with him like and Farrell? Um, So you don't really know who's helping who out there. Was he a product of that great defense or was he part of it as well? So there are some games where I kind of question his ability to make plays and if he has that explosive gear to really disrupt NFL backfields. But this guy's been on the field for a long time, has played a lot of quality football. He's a guy that's going to improve somebody's roster.
1: Perfect. And then that brings us really to his teammates. Uh, You mentioned him, Cleland Farrell. Kind of same thing. Are you kind of concerned of whether or not it was Lawrence and uh, and Wilkins and some of those guys? Or do you have a a, a stronger take on Farrell?
3: Yeah, I really like Cleland Farrell. I I don't think he's that edge bender. He doesn't have that flexibility. I mean, Brian Burns and Ja'Kai Polite and those guys are playing around 230 pounds. And Cleland Farrell is 6'4". 265, 270. So he's much heavier. He's that stout physical football player that can set an edge, disengage tight ends, play in space, but he can still threaten the pocket with pass rush moves and a good plan. He has a long arm move. He has a lot of inside moves. Another guy that's just not looking to run around tackles. He really reminded me of a Javon who was another player that really didn't look to run around tackles, had a variety of pass rush moves, a whole arsenal of ways to get to the quarterback, but really handled his business well in the run game that's a guy, Cleon Farrell, could really help out and stay on the field as an every-down player.
1: Yeah, I actually ended up liking him quite a bit too. He was one of those guys when I first started watching, you know, similarly to like an A.J. Brown. I didn't have a huge grade on Then I just kept watching him. And again, he just kind of grew on me the more and more that I watched him. Like you said, doesn't have that premier dip or bend move. He's not going to turn the corner uh, perfectly well, but certainly has enough athleticism, and it's going to hold up at the point of attack a little bit better than some of the undersized guys.
3: Yeah, he has some plays where I love edge rushers and defensive ends that can stack and shed blocks without looking at them. And I love that that when a tight end's in front of him, he can lock them out, play with his eyes up, and discard them without even thinking about it. And that's really how defensive ends should be handling tight ends on the edge of the line of scrimmage.
1: Perfect. Which brings us to one more edge rusher, and that is Montez Sweat. I just have had this gut feeling the entire time that he's going to end up being the pick at 12. I don't know why. I'm not saying he will, but that's just been my gut the entire time. Let's hear your take on Montez Sweat.
3: Yeah, so Montez Sweat, I've gotten a chance to see quite a bit this year. actually did three games of his this year, one last year. Former four-star tight end, went to Michigan State then to Juco and Mississippi State and converting to a defensive end. This guy's a tall glass of water. He's 6'6", 250. He's in the same mold as a Julius Peppers, a Jason Taylor, uh, a John Abraham, Connor Barwin, very long, tall glass of water. He's a guy you want to put down in a low post and let him post up on some smaller defenders uh, under the basket. But this guy's very long. He's athletic. He plays with a good motor. He has that real long angular, angular frame. But because of that, he doesn't have a whole lot of bulk and strength at the point of attack. So he's a guy that has the pass rush plan, a variety of moves. He has the long arm, the club grip, an arm over. He'll slant quickly into the B gap. He'll make a lot of really good plays. He could dip and flatten on the top of his rush. He's a guy that's a very savvy pass rusher. And I'm just wondering, what can he do for you in the run game? Is he going to be a liability on early downs? But he's someone that's been very productive in the SEC, As Back-to-back years of double, double-digit sacks, which is never anything to uh, snicker at coming from a dominant conference like that. So I could definitely see him being a pick at number 12. The Packers are going to consider very, very heavily.
1: Absolutely. And I think it might've been you who posted it of all the players that have been six, six or bigger and 260 pounds. I want to say are bigger. He was the fastest by a full 10th of a second. And the next was Jimmy Graham. I, I yeah, think it, it might have been you.
3: combine time, the four, four, one or whatever. I don't know if I still believe that that's an absurd speed for his size. And when I see that he's six six, two fifty, 250 running four, four, one, can he catch, can we throw this guy in offense? Like where else can he help you out?
1: Yeah, when you when you started talking about boxing out smaller defenders and even just kind of what I saw from an athletic standpoint, you kinda of wonder if maybe you got that uh, Julius Pepper slant route in the back of your mind with a, with a Montez sweat. I don't think many I forgot people, about that play. I think most people wanted to forget about that play, but it should have worked is the sad thing. Pepper should have probably caught it, but
3: Yeah, I don't remember. The throw was accurate and he dropped it, right?
1: Yeah, I'm almost positive, if I, if I remember correctly. It was well drawn up, and I think everyone in, in, their, in the whole stadium was expecting a fade to Peppers, and then he <laughs> kind of faked the fade, and he ran a slant, and he had him, and, and Peppers just couldn't come down with it. But neither here nor there. Uh, let's get to one more defensive player, and I certainly know that this is one that a lot of Packer fans are really interested in, and that's Ed Oliver.
3: Yeah, so Ed Oliver is another one of these really polarizing prospects because he was a big fish in a small pond. He was the first ever five star recruit to go to the University of Houston. With the coaching change, there's a little bit of turmoil with the new coaching staff and how he was being used and whether he was a bit of mismanaged based on his skill set. But this is a very explosive player. He's a one step explosive interior defensive lineman that shoots into gaps, makes a lot of plays from the backside, very tough to cut off. He's explosive, he hustles. He'll make plays 20, 30 yards down the field. I have several plays where he's the first guy off the ball and then hustling and making the play 20, 30 yards further down the field. So he's just a guy that hustles. You can see the play speed. But there's just been a question on playing from the University of Houston. This past year was almost a complete wash as he missed the second half of the season. The first half of the season, they finally played him out on the edge after having been a nose tackle his first two years. So that's probably more of a prototypical position that a play in the NFL – But he's just a shade over 6'1". So that's not really the length you want to play edge. He's much more in the mold of an Aaron Donald or Gerald McCoy to be that explosive three-tech getting into backfield. So there's a bit of a projection on where you want to play him in the NFL, but he tested off off the charts, obviously, in India in his pro day. We've seen all the videos of him working out, running around cones like a defensive back. He's an absolute freak show athlete. And I did his very first game ever in 2016 against the University of Oklahoma and he made several big plays in that game. Chase Baker Mayfield all over the place. Really looked uh, looked apart against a very dominant Oklahoma offensive line. And he was a true freshman. So he's somebody that's always been an intriguing player. And uh, NFL scouts have had their eye on for a couple years. It's just a matter of where you want to play him and how early do you take him.
1: I feel like a part of it is that he almost has been in the spotlight for so long, I don't, I don't know that I want to say necessarily that it seems to be like almost overthinking it because I definitely get the fact that this past year left a lot to be desired. And if you're picking a guy in the top 10, you would love to see a little bit more uh, sizzle on that stake in his last year in college, especially playing at the University of Houston. But of course, as you mentioned, playing out of position, he's playing over the center a lot. He's getting double teamed. He's getting triple teamed. Uh, it's just a really, like it's a tough read and there's a lot of projection involved, which I'm sure is why uh, there's some doubts of where he's going to go. On in the draft. But man, like you said, you look at him earlier in his career and you look at the freak show that he is athletically. It just seems so much to me that this should be a no-brainer top 10 pick. But like I said, I do get the other side of it as well.
3: And I do give him some credit. I really think he should have transferred once Tom Herman left and went to the University of Texas. He was the one that recruited him to Houston coming from Ohio State. He was the first five-star to go to Houston. And then Tom Herman leaves the next year. So I know a lot of teams are kind of interested and knocking on his door, for uh, lack of better words, wondering if he was going to transfer out to a, uh, a bigger program. But he hung out in Houston, and this is kind of where we are.
1: Absolutely. I'm, I'm intrigued to see where he goes. As much as I want him to uh, go 12 to Green Bay, I am really intrigued at how he would fit with Cincinnati right next to Geno Atkins. That, to me, would just be so much fun.
3: Uh, that wouldn't be fair. They already have a Geno Atkins up there. Spread the wealth.
1: Exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's touch base on two offensive linemen before we move on, and that's Jonah Williams and Andre Dillard. Uh, first, I guess my big question is: is do you feel that Jonah Williams can play tackle? Do you let him fail there first, or is he strictly a guard? And then uh, just kind of your overall thoughts on both of them.
3: Yeah, Jonah Williams. I'm going to let him fail at tackle first. It's almost like a Justin Pugh or a Luke Jokel uh, from Texas A&M a couple years ago. You're just concerned about the length, and when you watch the national championship game and clean Farrell a long, heavy defensive end that he's going to be seeing every week in the NFL, that's the style of player you're going to face. And if that player is giving him trouble with the long arm move and setting physical edges and he really can't get his hands on them, that's going to be a problem. But Jonah Williams has been a consistently dominant player at left tackle for uh, Alabama, did play right tackle earlier in his career. But he's an absolute zone-blocking prodigy. Inside zone, outside zone, combo blocks, getting up to the second level. Read and reacting off of slants and movements in front of him and his play ID and mental processing. He's always balanced, always under control. It's just those short arms that give you some concerns at time. But he did play in the SEC for three years at the tackle position and looked pretty good doing it. So I'm not saying he's a complete wash to move into guards. Just a little bit of a buyer beware with that arm length and some of the, uh, the length of defensive ends.
1: Absolutely, and then that brings us lastly to Andre Dillard, one of my favorite prospects in the entire draft. Give us your breakdown of him.
3: Yeah, I love Andre Dillard. I did three games of his this year against uh, Southern California, Cal, and then the bowl game against Iowa State. This team was a very dominant team this year. I think they were flirting between 8 and 15 in the rankings most of the year. He reminds me a lot of David Bakhtiari in that he's just kind of a quiet tackle. He's a very easy mover, effortless mover, very light feet, but he's not a mauler. He's not a guy that makes a lot of noise on the edge. He just kind of does his job. He can run the arc with speed rushers. He's very calm and under control in space, getting out to the perimeter. He's good at the point of attack. He has the pop. He's got the quick feed out of his stance. Really reminds me of David Bakhtiari. And I think his draft arc is almost like David Bakhtiari in that some people are kind of questioning his production. And did he play against some of the top flight edge rushers in the country out in the Pac-12? And did we see enough of his experience against in a nfl type of scheme as being in the uh, mike leach air raid scheme out of washington state he had over 700 dropbacks last year and only 13 sacks so he's a guy that's used to pass protecting but in an air raid scheme where they're getting the ball out a little bit quicker maybe not facing some of those prototypical nfl edge rushers out in the pac-12 but he's a guy that showed up to the senior bowl and really handled some of the top talent whether that was a montez sweat or the all-time sack leader in Jalen Ferguson. I really think that solidified his spot in my rankings, at least as being a top five tackle in this class.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think he is going to be somebody that maybe goes a little bit higher than people think just because left tackles that can pass protect are so ridiculously hard to find in this league. And they're so hard. I mean, if you're looking for one, you're not going to find one in free agency. And if you do, you're going to massively, massively overpay for that type of player. So uh, trying to get one is a ridiculous task to ask of any team. I know that it's tough to take tackles because a lot of them don't exactly turn out even when you're taking them in the first round, but he just has such natural hands, natural feet. I feel like he mirrors really well. Like I said, just one of my favorite prospects in this draft.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And his workout in Indianapolis in shorts and a t-shirt looked outstanding. His different movement patterns and his athleticism for his size being 6'4", 3'10", and running a sub 5 second 40. He obviously has the foot speed to get out of the perimeter and a screen game and things like that. He's a very intriguing prospect for scouts.
1: Excellent. All right. Well, that's going to take us through our, our somewhat of a lightning round there. But what I want to do now is take a look at kind of building a big board for that 12th pick. And I'm going to really kind of go off of your knowledge here. We're going to assume that two quarterbacks go prior to the Packers at pick 12. I think that's a semi-safe assumption. You never know for sure, but we're going to make that assumption today. So we're going, to need, we're going to need to build a board of 10 players that would potentially fit with the Packers at pick 12. I'm going to let you start off with maybe some really low-hanging fruit, no-brainer ones, and then we'll kind of have some discussion after that.
3: Yeah, well, we might as well go into some of the picks that we had just gone through. I think TJ Hawkinson, the tight end of Iowa, is a prime candidate for the number 12
1: pick. Excellent. And then what would you say about some of the top guys like Aquinnon Williams and Nick Bosa, Josh Allen, are all three of those that do you think they'd easily be in play should they fall to Green Bay at 12?
3: Yes, but I don't think they're going to be available. I think they're pretty consensus top seven, top eight picks, uh, even if some quarterbacks do get pushed up.
1: Absolutely. And I guess what I should say here is what I'm trying to do is pick the, the top 10 guys in the draft that aren't quarterbacks. So we know Green Bay will get at least one of these 10 guys.
3: Gotcha. Yep, absolutely. So and Williams, Joey, uh, excuse me, Nick Bosa, definitely fall into that conversation.
1: Excellent. So Josh Allen, you'd put him in there as well?
3: Yes, I do. I'm not as high on Josh Allen as the uh, national consensus, but I do still think he is a, a top 10 pick.
1: Excellent. All right. So we've got Josh Allen. We've got Nick Bosa. We've got Quinton Williams, TJ Hawkinson on that list. We need about six more guys in order to really complete this and make our big board. Who would be the next couple guys on your board after this?
3: I think the the linebacker position is very interesting this year. I think it's a huge drop off after the top two, Devin White and Devin Bush. And then there's a huge kind of gap and a clump on those day two and even day three players. But I think because of the lack of depth, I that pushes Devin White and Devin Bush that much higher up into the consensus of being top 10 picks.
1: Interesting. And then how about uh, some of those defensive players like Montez Sweat, Brian Burns, at Oliver? How would you view them in that area?
3: Uh, right now, I have Nick Bosa in a tier above them. And in that next tier, I have Brian Burns, Montez Sweat, and Cleon Farrell as highly productive starters, potential pro bowlers, first round picks. So I have no problem putting those players into a top 10 conversation.
1: And that includes Ed Oliver?
3: Ed Oliver is most certainly into that conversation as well.
1: Perfect. And then any of the offensive linemen or any other skill position players that you would put on that board?
3: I think Cody Ford is in the conversation for his tackle and guard versatility and the fact that the Packers have had some issues at that right guard, right tackle position. Yeah, I think that's a player that kind of fits the mold of how they've addressed the offensive line uh, in previous drafts. There's some other guys later that may intrigue them, like a, you know, a Zach Bailey or possibly a Dalton Risner at Kansas State that can do the same things. Uh, but I think Cody Ford has that talent and is much more of a uh, a higher rated prospect to maybe be a, a top 10 pick.
1: Excellent. So besides the two QBs, the 10 people that we have on this list right now would be TJ Hawkinson, Quinnen Williams, Nick Bosa, Josh Allen, Devin Bush, Devin White, Brian Burns, Montez Sweat, Ed Oliver, and Cody Ford. That would be 10. If you include the two quarterbacks, that would be 12. Assuming those two QBs go before 12, Green Bay would be uh, definitely able to get one of those 10 players. Anyone that should be on that list that maybe isn't anyone you want to take off?
3: No, I feel okay with that.
1: Uh, I do too. I think that's a really good list. Uh, and I, I think Green Bay's in a really great spot, especially if those two QBs go before them. Again, they're going to get one of either TJ Hawkinson, Quinnen Williams, Nick Bosa, Josh Allen, Devin Bush, Devin White, Brian Burns, Montez Sweat, Ed Oliver, or Cody Ford. One of those guys should almost assuredly be on the board when Green Bay picks and likely maybe two or three of those guys will be there when they're selecting as well. So before I get into some of your favorites and least favorites, while we're talking about building that big board, what is your kind of hope for these first three picks for Green Bay? Do you have a, uh, you know, maybe a philosophy that you're hoping that they use? Do you have specific positions that you're hoping they pick? Is there a player or two that you're really kind of crossing your fingers for?
3: Right now I'm in the kind of philosophical approach that you can't go wrong bolstering the trenches. So I think adding, whether you view them as starting caliber players or depth players on either the defensive side of the ball, interior, edge rushers, offensive line depth, I think that's the lifeblood of NFL teams and rosters. And I don't think you can ever go wrong bolstering either side of the trenches. And We saw a year last year where we had some injury bugs and the offensive line uh, really fell apart on them halfway through the season. The defensive line maybe didn't produce as much as uh, we had expected with the expectations of guys like Mike Daniels and Clay Matthews. So I think adding any sort of quarterback hunters and guys that live in the trenches are really the lifeblood of football teams.
1: Absolutely. Is there a thought that you have on whether or not another scenario comes up where uh, Brian Gutekunst has the opportunity to trade down and make a move similar to what he did last year with New Orleans? Uh, Would you be on board with that? Would you be more hesitant? Take somebody at 12? What's kind of your thought process there?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think you always have to have that phone open and listening to uh, teams that maybe are desperate to go get a player they need or really want. And to hear uh, Dave Gettleman of the Giants say, I I didn't take any phone calls about number two last year. I mean, you don't know what the offer could be. So you always have to have that phone open and listening. And when you're in a team like the Packers that, yeah, maybe they don't have any huge needs or, uh, hey, we don't need that QB1 or, hey, we're missing a left tackle, that they have some flexibility especially after free agency, to maybe trickle down in the draft and bolster uh, with some additional picks and adding more volume of draft players than going after the premier players on the front edge of the draft. So I think getting out of 12 is definitely a possibility.
1: I do too. And I think if you ever have the opportunity to stay in the first round and pick up a first rounder for next year, like they did last year with New Orleans, I take that deal a hundred times out of a hundred. And I know it didn't turn out the best because New Orleans ended up playing really, really well and not being until pick 30, but I still take that deal every day of the week. And and by the way, uh, we need to have another episode that we do that's 100 percent dedicated to to Dave Gettleman decision making throughout the NFL draft because I think that would be very very fascinating.
3: I think you need a team of scientists and like NASA to kind of diagnose that.
1: We we will do everything we can. We will get as many experts as we can to diagnose exactly what happened there because that would, would be more of one personality
3: experts, a psychologist, <laughs> a the whole the whole deal. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. All right. Let's continue on. I do want to, before I let you go, get some of your favorite players in the draft. Some players that maybe you're not as high on as maybe uh, the media or some of other draft analysts are portraying them, and then maybe some of your sleepers in the draft. So let's start with some of your favorite players in this entire draft class.
3: Yeah, I mean that's kind of open ended, but uh, you know, there's a, a number of guys at every position that you kind of crush on and you, you almost you know fall in love with when you're watching them. And I think there's a number of receivers in this class that. Really didn't test well, but they just do their job on the field, and there are kind of four, six, four, seven receivers, but they have great hands and run good routes, and I'm talking about Keyshawn Johnson from Fresno State, who was a very productive player, broke all Devontae Adams' records, actually came from the same high school as Devontae Adams. There's another guy, Keelan Doss at UC Davis, highly productive player uh, in the past two years, has a record for catches and yards, and just didn't test that well, but... These are guys that are very productive on tape and catch the ball and know how to get themselves open. I always have a little bit of a crush on those guys that don't have the athletic, God-given gifts waking up in the morning running 4-3. These are guys that have to be technicians and have to know how to get themselves open. So, And then going with linebacker, same kind of conversation. There's these guys that aren't running the four-fours like Devin Bush are, but are making tons of plays. And I look at Wisconsin linebacker T.J. Edwards, who runs 4-7-7, but he plays and makes plays all over the field and he takes really good angles and is very instinctual. And there's a bunch of guys like that, whether that's Terrell Hanks at the New Mexico State, who I thought could be this year's Darius Leonard until he runs a 4.99 at the combine and people are wondering what's going on. Apparently he pulled his hamstring just a little bit, but this guy absolutely looks the part with long arms and he's very imposing and rocked up, a bunch of huge hits. And other guys like that, Jelani Tavai from Hawaii, Jeff Allison from Fresno State. These are guys that aren't testing well, but they play with instincts and get, take great angles to the ball carrier and are just really, really solid tacklers that I think will improve NFL teams. I just don't know where they get drafted. Um, there's players at every position I kind of fall in love with. I love Travion Williams out of Texas A&M running for 1,800 yards in the SEC. He's a great screen running back. I love Trevon Wesco the tight end out of West Virginia who they don't throw the ball to a whole lot, but this guy blocks just as well as TJ Hopkinson. Maybe he doesn't have the uh, athletic upside as TJ Hopkinson or the test scores, but this is a guy you could put in line and survive in the run game that I think is going to be a really interesting day three option for some teams. And there's always those nasty offensive linemen. I can watch Dalton Risner all day at Kansas State just be that mauling tackle looking to finish defenders into the ground. Caleb McGarry at Washington. Same type of tackle, that nasty mauler scrapper that, hey, when something goes wrong, when someone steps on my foot or I trip or the defensive end knocks my hands down, can you maul your way out of it? Can you scrap your way out of it? And I love the scrapping type of offensive linemen like Dalton Brisner that aren't afraid to get punched in the face and go deliver a shot right back to them. I want those guys on my team.
1: Yeah, it's tough not to like Reisner and and kind of the attitude that he plays with. And you can just see it on tape. You know, he plays, you know, through the whistle in a productive way, if you will. It's not dirty. It's just tough. And uh, again, it's really tough not to cheer for those type of guys. Uh, Great list of players there. On the flip side, maybe some players that, you know, there's a lot of buzz around or maybe you're hearing are going to go really early that maybe just aren't your cup of tea, not necessarily that they're going to be bad or not turn out, but just maybe some concerns that you have.
3: Yeah, I'll hit you with a little five-pack here. So uh, wide receiver Paris Campbell out of Ohio State has been obviously turning heads since running 4-3-1 at the Combine. This is a track star playing receiver. Everybody says, oh, I can't wait him to get into my offense and throw him the ball down the field. Well, Ohio State really didn't do that. He only caught two passes over 20 yards down the field his entire career. Why? Because he's not a good route runner. doesn't track the ball very well. This is a track star turned into a receiver. So Ohio State said, how can we get this guy the ball if he can't get himself open? Jet sweeps, shallow crosses, quick slants, bubble action, any yards after catch threat. And once you get the ball in his hands, you can see him go and take away angles. But don't think you're just going to put him into an NFL offense and say, run deep for me. That's really not what he did. This wasn't a guy that was beating Marshawn Lattimore, Garyon Conley, and Denzel Ward in practice. But Ohio State said, how can we help him? How can we get him the ball? And you had to kind of scheme him open. So there's some buyer beware on Paris Campbell, despite his workout numbers. And same thing with a Gary Jennings, who ran 4-3 from West Virginia. He's a guy that played in the slot, had tons of plays down the field, but never saw press coverage. Actually, rarely was ever jammed or even disrupted in his route. Some plays he just ran straight, completely unobstructed. So Those type of plays really don't tell me a whole lot about the prospect. He did go to the senior bowl and did handle some press coverage, but he's a bit of buyer beware where I don't think you're going to see that 4-3, 4-4 speed on an NFL offense. There's some other guys, some project corners. Everybody's intrigued with Michigan State cornerback Justin Lane, the former four-star receiver, turned to the defensive side of the ball two years ago. He's a very interesting, tough player. He's big. He's 6'2", 190, 200 pounds. He tackles really well. He'll disrupt you on the line of scrimmage. But his technique is a mess down the field. He doesn't always turn and find the ball the proper way. He's not locating the ball to make plays on it down the field. He can disrupt you at the catch point with his physicality, his long arms, his toughness. But I thought he was a guy that could really benefit for another year at Michigan State to refine his craft after changing positions. He was only a junior. I have some personal information that he was actually recommended to stay at Michigan State and decided to come out anyways. So it's always disappointing to see those guys that you think could maybe refine their game with just another year in college. I don't know why they're so anxious to get out all the time as an underclassman. And that brings me to Brian, uh, Byron Murphy, the corner of Washington. Very interesting cornerback class. I think the pecking order is all over the place trying to figure out who's corner one, where does Greedy Williams fall in, Byron Murphy. There's some guys that tested really well that don't have good tape, and there's guys with good tape that didn't test well. But Byron Murphy, he's a very small corner, and he didn't test very well. He's good at zone. He's good at half turn. He's good at off coverage. He's good at bail. But what do you do with a corner that doesn't play a very good press man? He's only about 185 pounds, and he runs 4 So he's not a guy that can really handle himself at the catch point. He's not a guy that can run, turn and run with some of these big 4-4 receivers in the NFL. Can he survive just being an off or a zone corner? I found myself writing a lot of similar things to Dante Jackson from LSU that went to the Carolina Panthers, and they did a great job putting him in a lot of off and zone situations. The only difference is Dante Jackson was a 4-3 corner. Now, he was the same size and had the same issues with handing, handling bigger receivers at the catch point, but he had to make-up speed and the twitch. So I'm just a little bit concerned about Byron Murphy's scheme fit and his ability to handle some of these bigger receivers in the NFL, and the last one, like I was saying earlier, outside linebacker defensive end Josh Allen, very productive player from the University of Kentucky, apparently put on 25, 30 pounds heading into his senior season and was much more productive and had better play strength. But when you put on the tape against the best teams, and he didn't play Alabama the past two years, so I go right to the Georgia tape, I really felt like those tackles and tight ends mauled him at the point of attack, especially in the run game. So I think there's a huge buyer beware on what Josh Allen can do for you in the run game in the NFL, and if he can survive on early downs.
1: Yeah, that was my concern with Josh Allen as well. And I think you and I actually had very similar uh, top five edge rush rankings from one through five, if I remember correctly. Uh, But Josh Allen, of course, he has that explosion. You could see him drop back in coverage well. Like you said, the question is going to be, can he hold up at the point of attack? I wasn't totally sold on... His uh, pass rush repertoire, I saw him more as a a speed rusher from the outside. Um, I I admittedly have probably a couple more games I need to watch on him. Um, Those
3: edge rushers that just look to run around tackles always scare me because tackles fire out much quicker in the NFL. And if you don't have a pass rush plan and adequate hand usage, you're going to get eaten up pretty quick in the NFL.
1: It's, it's not a, a perfect comp for a couple different reasons, but the guy that just kept flashing in my head with him was Bud Dupree. And uh, that was just a little bit of my concern with him, is that maybe he was going to be, uh, again, that, that fast guy that just kind of run around the edge and didn't always necessarily hold up at the point of attack. I think Dupree's been a little bit better lately, but certainly struggled with that early in his career.
3: I'm telling you, go throw on Kyler Fackrell film from college at Utah State, and he's a very similar player. He won with a lot of athleticism and length against some smaller tight ends and tackles and lesser competition. I've had Kyler Facco written down as a comp for him for a couple months now. I just really haven't gone public with it, but I see a lot of similar qualities and I could see a lot of similar issues once he gets to an NFL team.
1: So you're saying he's a lock top three pick because he's has got Kyler <laughs> okay. Fackle. Account. Got it. All right. So uh, last but not least, Some sleepers that you have in this draft. I know you kind of covered a couple of them when you were talking about some of the players that you liked, but uh, I know you've kind of uncovered some guys in the past. You noticed uh, Tarverius Moore last year and got the shout out on NFL Network from Mayock. Maybe a couple guys like that who you're kind of keeping your eye on that may go a lot sooner than maybe people are thinking.
3: Yeah, I always love talking about the sleepers. So one guy was very intriguing. He's a small defensive back at a James Madison. He went to the shrine game, got called up to the senior bowl, and then they didn't get the combine invite. And I was very disappointed he didn't get that. This is Jimmy Moreland, who showed up to his pro day and ran four four six. Very productive player, eighteen interceptions at JMU, six return for a touchdown, forty-five pass breakups. He's undersized, but he's feisty and a lot of ball production, special teamer. He's got a very strange knack for blocking kicks. He blocked seven in high school, another five at James Madison. This is a guy you can implement on special teams that's going to improve somebody's back end of a, a defensive back room. But uh, there's a bunch of guys I really like in this draft. I love Memphis running back, receiver, returner, hybrid, Tony Pollard, who I think is a late-round version of a Debo Samuel. He's a guy that you just want to get the ball in his hands, whether it's jet sweeps, handing it to him. Quick game, any yards after catch opportunities. He could win down the field. He actually set the record for most kickoff return touchdowns. He'll be a punt gunner for you. If you like a Debo Samuel, you'll like a Tony Pollard as well. I think there's always some intriguing receivers that don't get enough love, whether that's Jamal Custis at Syracuse, who's a big, tall glass of water. He's six five, two ten, above the rim style of player that can win down the field, or Northern Colorado's Alex Wesley. But reminded me a lot of a Sterling Shepard type of slot receiver, one of those slots that can win in the quick game and get himself open. And then also has the vertical threat, which is kind of a rare ability for some slot receivers that maybe don't have the length or the strides to kind of climb on some smaller defensive backs. And then I absolutely love quarterback Brett Rippon at Ripp, Boise State this guy, you just want him in your quarterback room. He's been a four-year starter for Boise after being a high recruit out of the state of Washington. He'll turn his back to the defense and pro style, play action concepts from under center. And I love players that slowly improve through their college career. His completion percentage went up. He just sent his career records for yards, touchdowns, completion percentage. He's so a very efficient player. I just wonder what it would be if he was two inches taller. And I think about that with some of these other quarterbacks. Whether so that's Trace McSorley or Gardner Minshew or Easton Stick from uh, North Dakota State. These guys are all around 6'1 and don't have the biggest arms because of that. I just wonder if these guys are around 6'3, 6'4. I think all four of those players, we really talking round one, round two type of prospects. They have tons of great film. I love watching Trace McSorley. I love watching Gardner Minshew. Easton Stick has tons of great film and has won a lot of games up in North Dakota State. They just don't fit the measurable of NFL offenses or NFL uh, you know, prototypes for their position. So they're probably all day three or undrafted free agent type of players. But let me tell you, if they get into camp somewhere, those are the guys that are going to be showing out in those preseason games and really making uh some of those roster decisions tough uh, when it comes late August.
1: Yeah, you hit on a couple there. And and certainly Brett Rippon and Easton Stick are, are two of my favorites. And like you said, if they're a couple inches taller and have a little bit more arm strength, Man, I think you're talking about really some, maybe not top 10 type guys, but some really, really impressive prospects. And hey, I'll
3: tell you what, I'm not going to be the guy to count them out. I would agree. I've seen enough of them on tape. I've seen enough grit. I've seen enough comebacks. I've seen them take shots in the pocket and hang, hang in there and win games and bowl games and national championships in the case of Easton Stick. I'm not going to be the one to rule out these guys.
1: No, I totally agree, and I've actually gone on record to say I think Stick and Rippon might be the only two quarterbacks that I would take that, own, that won't go overdrafted, meaning that I think a lot of the other guys are going to go above of where their value might be. I think Stick and Rippon might be the two guys that you can get uh, at a good spot and could actually still turn out pretty good in this league. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Uh, and, uh, one last thing. I just think it's a very interesting draft. For defensive backs. These guys come in all different shapes and sizes and there's strictly outside corners and you have the back end range guys and you got some nickel conversions of smaller corners and all these cover safeties in Darnell Savage and Amani Hooker and Asir Adderley. Just a very interesting draft for defensive backs. If you need some talent in the back end of your defense, this is a draft to do it.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And I think that pick 44 could be really intriguing for that. You would certainly think a couple of those guys at minimum would be available if Green Bay wanted to go in that direction. Last thing I wanted to bring up today, Ben, I think you've made a couple really great points on this recently in Twitter. And I think it's such an important thing for people to realize when people are trying to project these type of players. You and I and a lot of other people enjoy so much of the aspect of breaking down the tape and finding some of these players and reviewing it. Uh, but you've done a really great job of saying, Hey, hold on a second. That's like 25% of what goes into whether or not this player will be, will be successful. And it's a lot of their off field. It's a lot of their character. It's a lot of the stuff that isn't necessarily the most fun thing to talk about. It's also the scheme fit, how they fit within the franchise, what franchise they're specifically going to. And all of those things can determine whether or not the player turns out or not. And it's not necessarily that the tape is right or wrong. You could be 100% right on the tape and three years, out, you know, three years down the road, the guy could be out of the league because of a variety of different issues. So while we love these players and there's other guys we're not such a fan of, there's so much that we don't know as fans, even, even watching all of this tape that we now have access to that we didn't years ago.
3: Absolutely. And it's just a reminder that the successes and failures in the NFL are rarely about ability. And you can see as much of the ability as you want on tape. You can watch every down of his career, but that's not the full picture. You're not going to know the man, the person, the employee, the co-worker, the teammate, some of those things that really matter once you get into the professional world of athletics that some guys trip and fall and don't know how to set an alarm in the morning and don't have responsibility. And it, these are young 20 to 25-year-olds kind of finding their way through life. And I always like these different stories where it isn't about ability, whether it's a Cole Madison who was dealing with the, the suicide of a friend and was dealing with personal issues of depression. Or I can, I probably won't say his name, but there was a top a first-round quarterback within the last 10 years that in his rookie camp he got put on the drug program. So, you know, that's a player that immediately was kind of doomed from the start. You can't have your starting quarterback on the drug program as a rookie. So there's a lot of things like that, that there's all these other factors that come into play with your success and failures as a professional athlete in the NFL, aside from ability.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I was actually in uh, the sports management worldwide scouting course. And one of the, I guess, quote unquote professors in that was Mark Dominic, the former GM. And he uh, he talked really candidly about some of the mistakes that they made picking Josh Freeman uh, so early. And he kind of went into some of the details of some of the signs that he should have seen uh, you know, the talent was obviously there.
3: Since you went down that road, that is the first round quarterback I was mentioning that was put into the drug program as a rookie.
1: Oh, interesting. I, yeah, I didn't even put those two together. A lot I didn't people
3: didn't know that. Um, and it's not uh, widespread public knowledge, but the aesthetics of having your kind of rookie to be your starter, face of the franchise, and then realizing he has a problem off the field those are all things that factor into the entire equation. It's really interesting to hear you go right to Mark Dominic and talking about that situation.
1: Yeah, it was because it was just so. It's it, of all the things that I learned in that course, that was the one that ne- that definitely stood out to me in a story that I've told multiple times because it was just so intriguing to hear some of the tells that he realized afterwards how, how involved the parents were kind of in a not exactly Alonzo ball type of way with Lamar ball, but uh, how involved the parents were and that he wasn't very self sufficient and just all of these different tells that he knew he saw after the fact and realized that it was a mistake. But in the process, He got completely enamored with the player and was able to kind of overlook some of those things. And it was certainly something that you could tell he regretted and obviously at this point no longer a GM in the league. Uh, But it was just a very intriguing conversation with him and uh, something that's definitely stood uh, by me. And um, I always remember, you know, Daniel Jeremiah is another guy who always talks about one of the reasons he got out of scouting is because so much of it became all of the off-field stuff that you had to go. You're kind of like a, a personal detective almost trying to figure out all the off-field stuff. And it's not so much about breaking down tape anymore, which is obviously what he loves doing so much of. So it's such an important aspect that so much of us as fans don't know of. And uh, it's, it's just so important to remember that when, when your favorite team drafts a player and either you like them or you don't like them, if it were such an exact science, the top you know, 20 players that are going to go on to be pro bowlers and all pros would be picked in the top 25 every year. And obviously that's not the case.
3: Yeah. you know, In kind of a weird, frustrated tone, I was talking with ESPN's Matt Bowen the other day uh, in the office, and I was almost at a point where I w- I'm done watching quarterbacks because it doesn't matter how great your tape is. If I don't know you personally, if I haven't talked to you, if I haven't got you up on the whiteboard and talk to your coach and your athletic, uh, academic advisor and your trainer and your position coach, what does the tape even matter? Cause there's so many other factors that play into the success of NFL quarterbacks. If your tape is great, great. But there's so many other uh, kind of points in the equation that I'm not privy to.
1: Yeah. The, one of the things I try to do is in, in situations like that, and it's not a perfect uh, example by any stretch, but I try to go. And while I also watch the tape I try to find as many interviews that I can on, on YouTube and, and wherever I can find them to see how they interact. And it sounds like a ridiculous thing, but the Kyler Murray interview with Dan Patrick was as an intriguing of a tape to me as any tape that he had on the field this season. Because as you know, from a quarterback, you are the face of that franchise. You are not just the guy taking the football under center and doing miraculous things with it. You have to be so much more than that, as we've seen as Packer fans in this crazy last couple weeks with all the stuff Aaron Rodgers is going through. If you don't know how to handle that stuff, it it doesn't even matter what you can do on the field. So that stuff is so very intriguing to me as well.
3: Hey, wherever you can gather information, and there's plenty of obviously media and interviews and things like that to learn a little bit more about the person, about the man, about how he talks, his presence, his body language, his respect, his maturity. That's all part of the equation. And anything you can do to gather a little bit more information, that just being a savvy scout and a savvy evaluator. So I credit you for going and finding those interviews.
1: Absolutely. Ben, I could do this for another probably at least three days consecutively without stopping, uh, but I'm going to let you go. This was phenomenal. I absolutely love talking X's and O's in football with you, and especially during draft time, this is absolutely the best. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Where can we find your work, and where can we follow you on Twitter?
3: Absolutely. Always a pleasure to talk ball with you Packers Draft. You can follow me at Twitter at Ben Fennell underscore NFL. That's B E N F E N N E L L underscore NFL. Be sure to check out our draft coverage on NFL network, put together a lot of great tapes for our analysts, Kurt Warner, Charles Davis, Daniel Jeremiah, also working on some pieces in the offseason over at the athletic Wisconsin. I have a great interview with Aaron Jones coming up tomorrow to dig into some of his film. And I'm very excited to put together that piece. So be on the lookout and, uh, Just uh, follow me on Twitter, and I'm going to keep talking about these draft prospects all year round.
1: Absolutely. Ben, you're absolutely one of the best, and it's always a pleasure talking with you. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks so much again for joining me. Make sure everyone to listen in tomorrow as Jacob and Zach discuss the quarterbacks and special teams players in the draft. Monday, I've got a ridiculous mock draft super episode. Uh, Ben Fennel was a part of that. Uh, Aaron Nagler, Lindsay O'Kay. Uh, we've got just a ridiculous group, Joe Marino. There's a million people that I'm missing, but we've had such a great group. 32 different draft choices announced by 32 different people, the vast majority of them who are experts on that specific team. So you're not going to want to miss that. It is a super-sized episode with a ton of information and a lot of fun draft picks. So make sure to check that out on Monday. If you haven't yet, make sure to get your copy of the Cheesehead TV draft guide. Some amazing evaluation on some players that is specific catered to a Green Bay Packer audience. Thanks again to Ben for coming on the show. I will see you all Monday for the Super Mock Draft. But until then, and as always, Go Pack Go!
0: One kick away from the NFC Championship game. From the 41, left taskbar, 51 yard, field goal attempt, snap, placement, kick, to the other.
1: the Green Bay
2: Packers. Mother's Day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time test to gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement